Welcome homeowners, home buyers, landlords, and tenants alike, people who just want to be better at living in a home. You're listening to Real Estate in the 608, Madison's real estate magazine for your ears. Join Madison Radio's Adam Elliott, real estate broker and landlord Ben Anton as they break down the modern-day barriers of home ownership. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and if you're not careful, you'll learn. Come on, baby, won't you hold me tighter than your fists curled up in a schoolyard fight? I'll be a backup Thanks for waiting. That was the waiting song from Madison musician Seesaw. Welcome to Real Estate in the 608, Madison's real estate magazine for your ears. On Facebook, at In the 608. Hey, I'm Adam Elliott. And I'm Ben Anton. And welcome, Ben. We're at the September 2020 edition of Real Estate in the 608. We're coming up on two years. I feel like we're established. It's coming up to the point where we should start nominating ourselves for awards. But we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Let's talk about what Real Estate in the 608 is. In each episode, we try to discuss what are the headlines going on in the day of Real Estate Matters. Both locally and a bit far away, we are going to recap the highest and lowest price sales in Dane County in, in our recent month. Mm-hmm. We'll give you some helpful information with the top of the hour tip and the market update. We surround ourselves each episode with people smarter than we are. Yeah, one of the people that we have uh, each month, certainly smarter than we are, is Phil Plord, uh, president of Blimling and Associates, a division of Dairy.com. He's going to be in to take a look beyond the 608 beyond what's out there <laughs> it's coming on halloween maybe there'll be a special feature yes. and we also talking about features we feature uh local music from musicians and artists in the 608 yeah we like to keep it local well we are or i should say well i am uh, adam elliott i'm a homeowner teacher uh user experience architect is the design i get professionally paid for former Rat- madison radio personality as well i am ben anton broker associate at the lower realty group i am a landlord and and as you will learn podcaster <laughs> see we're winking about something that means something's coming up we're gonna add that to our title kind of excited about this week's guest it's somebody that works for the uw is a you know we talk about where you surround our ourselves with experts this person actually legitimate, legitimate yeah expertise not that our other guests haven't been but this person has obviously got the credentials to back all that up and i'm looking forward to having dr Paige glotzer author and assistant professor here at our university uh joining us she is the assistant professor and john w Jean m Rowe chair in the history of american politics institutions and political economy i know to be honest i had to look up i'm like what does a chair do of a department it's the faculty representation of the department essentially it's i'm like, like that's a that's a big deal <laughs> it's kind of like being the boss and as we mentioned she's also an author uh, of a book that came out earlier this year called how the suburbs were segregated and that will be the topic that we're going to speak with her today on. What that looks like uh, locally, what that looked like uh, more nationally, and, and, and the reach and scope of the single organization or city that she st- started her study in. Yeah, we're clearly dealing with a lot of social justice issues. I think the thing that she wrote about is at the center of a lot of these issues. It's hard to like cut through to, to what that means and how that puts together, but those are the questions that we're going to ask her in today's episode. <laughs> So what's been going on since last time, Ben? Since last time, I've made a brief note here because I wanted to keep it simple and easy for everyone to understand. I did not kill myself in an electrified pool of water. I'm glad I'm not talking to a ghost right now. What happened? 
I was in the kiddie pool backyard having uh-huh. fun, and I had used a uh, a submersible pump. I had wired it up and created kind of a filter. Okay. And I had used that that for, submersible pump for what re- were you playing in keep, a kiddie pool or to keep the pool fresh? Okay. Keep, I'd been I'd been adding chlorine, <laughs> and I was using this pump. To keep stuff out of the this water. This isn't like one of the 12-inch pools off the ground. You have like one of the bigger, it was like me- the inflatable pools, right? It was medium size. It was medium size. But it was still okay. for kids and me. <laughs> but then I was like using it like a vacuum. Long story short, the uh, the pump has a cord of a certain length, and then it plugs into an extension cord to run to my house. I let the, I let the extension cord and the cord of the pump, I let that junction below the level of the water. I literally <gasps> lowered... Oh, no. I lowered an extension cord into the water that I was standing in. You were standing in the pool. Standing in the pool, vacuuming. And? And I heard... The GFCI I heard the GFCI outlet pop 40 feet away. Oh, my gosh. At the back door. Careful. Oh, my gosh, pal. It was scary. Are you okay? You've took me a little bit. It was... But, yeah, it was kind of a big deal. Did you, like, take a step back and were like... Think about what just happened. I did, and it was the neighbor in the backyard. Like, I need to tell someone what just happened. <laughs> wow, man! Yeah. I had some electrical work since what's been going on. I did some electrical work in my house. Not not as dangerous of a similar nature, though. I had two ceiling fans. I brought somebody in to do the electrical work to put the box in the ceiling, and I installed the ceiling fans. And while they were there, they pointed out to me some problems, including that I did not have GFCI switches in my basement near the washing machine. But I knew enough about electricity, and I knew where the breaker was to turn that thing off and just swap those things out. So I did that myself. The washing machine still works, and the house has hasn't started on fire yet. Good so job. And you are, as such, safer. <laughs> I certainly hope so. There's one other bit we want to note here that uh, we're in the finals. The finals. Um, I thought sports pretty much got canceled this whole year, right? It kind of did. <laughs> and this is why we can be so excited about your favorite podcast being in the finals. Yes. Of the Wisconsin Podcast Association Choice Awards. This is something, there's a group called the Wisconsin Podcast Association, if you yeah. did not know. Uh, we submitted to be into two categories, uh, and we made the cut with the help of voting from our fans mm-hmm. have made it to the final round if you could please visit uh at in the 608 on facebook and uh, for the next 15 days because for the today is september 1st mm-hmm. until the 15th you may register your vote marking real estate in the 608 as both the best business podcast and the best Wisconsin podcast. Okay, so for those who voted already, we need your vote again. But we would love if you could uh, share your love via the Survey Monkey link that we've posted and shared on our Facebook page at In the Six Hundred Eight. Well, that's what's been going on since last time. How about from the headlines? In early August, we saw some news from the Urban League of Greater Madison. They received a combined grant of $5 million from WIDA and the City of Madison to promote minority homeownership. The League already has a rent-to-own program in place. This grant, though, when partnered with $1.5 million in borrowed funds, should allow them to buy and renovate a planned 15 to 20 homes to add to their stock. And this fits into the equation of when we talk about equity and access. This is the access part. If folks don't have the money, they need, there needs to be some type of work to make this a little fair, right, to level the playing under field. underrepresented group, and this is one way that someone here locally is uh, is is helping that group specifically. Good work from the Urban League there. Yeah, good yeah. to hear, and something that I hope we'll we'll hear more about. 
Um, here's kind of a not local along similar lines. Uh, August 25th, Jacksonville, Florida. Dateline, Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, a homeowner, after receiving a lower than expected appraisal on their home. So the value of the home right. that year. Didn't expect it. it. Yep. Uh, an appraisal, this has been for a refinance. You, the, okay. You kind of made it sound like you were talking about an assessment. It's not the assessment, right. it's the appraisal. So they're going to re, refinance. You invite the appraiser in, and they give you an idea of what they think the house is worth. So the number comes back low. They they feel something is amiss. The, the wife was uh, an African-American, and the white fella is the husband. They removed all evidence of blackness, got the house reappraised, and found an additional hundred thousand plus dollars in equity, a forty percent increase. Yeah, found it, right? Yeah, found, I mean, found this extra money. So here it is. Yeah. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about institutional racism uh, as part of uh, Dr. Glotzer's book, and and the and the way that implicit bias so easily transferred mm-hmm. and became systemic racism. Um, but here, here is just someone working inside a system who had implicit biases felt that this home was worth less due to its ownership and mm-hmm. the fact that it was owned by an African-American family or in par- a part African-American. Yeah, this draws the exact parallel to the study, the research that was done when people with names that sound African-American or black submit a resume to a job. They're much less likely to get a job if they submit a resume with a name of a person that sounds like they're a white person as well. One of the things I know is that the when an appraiser visits, people may not appear in the photos. So like if your home working, because you work from home now, and you have an appraiser visit, the photos they take that will then be reviewed by an underwriter may not include occupants. Oh, I got you. And I believe that's for the exact same reason. Right. Um, But if the bias is happening at the very front line in the mind of the appraiser, then the fact that the the occupants are not to be pictured wouldn't necessarily even have an effect. I mean, unfortunately, it's just like another example of these things happening. I, I shared that article on the Real Estate in the 608 mm-hmm. Facebook page. So if you're going there to vote, you, nice can just, plug. Yeah. you can just scroll down a bit. <laughs> and then again, that was voting for us in the best business podcast and best Wisconsin podcast categories in the Wisconsin Podcast Association's Choice Awards. Well done. Let's talk about the lows and highs. Lowest sale price of the recent month, 223 Exchange Street in Rockdale. All right. Cambridge area, right? uh, Just 10 10 miles south of Cambridge. It reminded me of Rock Ridge. (laughs) From Blazing Saddles. (laughs) I watched Blazing Saddles with Evelyn, and uh, I I felt it was like a must-see. I was like, you're going to be in college soon. And you need to be the girl who saw this. Uh-huh. Was she, Rock Ridge the fake town that they built? Not to give any spoilers in Blazing Saddles. Or was it the well, actual it, town that they lived in? It was both. It was both. Okay. They built, because they, they, the train was going to run straight through right. Rock Ridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except they built the fake Rock Ridge off to the side to confuse right, the... Right, right. So talk about... The racist mob, racist. essentially. Right yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know, like you could live in it. 1,700 square foot. Old timey farmhouse mm-hmm. in a in what I've described as apparently livable condition. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. It was kind of like a downtown rental, you know, like it had drop ceiling and everything. Oh, right. Everything was flat white. 
Not <laughs> like there's a big hole in the living room and squirrels get in. No, apparently livable. But I was like, you could probably move in. <laughs> yeah. And as such, it had typical financing. Um, listed at one fifteen to start, sold in twenty four days for ninety seven thousand. Uh, the highest, I believe, I'd have to check my Adam fact checker. Mm-hmm. Uh, first house on Lake Wabisa. Mm, I'd say so. I don't think we've mentioned Wabisa yet. But uh, here we are, 6134 Overlook Drive on beautiful Lake Wabisa. Four-bedroom, four-bath, 3,600 square feet, 78 feet of frontage. I think that's kind of the difference. That's a lot, that, isn't it? 78 a, feet stretch a, along the lake shore? That's a good amount, because yeah. that's about half again as much as you're going to get downtown oh. Madison on mm-hmm. Monona or the inside. You know, we're mm-hmm. looking at old in, inside Madison houses on the lake. Now, you might be as down as 50 square feet, or 50 wow. linear feet of shoreline. But this house also has a four-car heated garage. You so, live in that. W. Olax. What is Good it called? Good times, yeah. great oldies. Good times, great oldies. It's now classic. It's 90. And they, they, play, they play the Macarena now. Uh, but they used to have <laughs> the Elvis Birthday Bash. Sure. Uh-huh. Where was it held down there? It's out of business now. It was a restaurant, and now I think it's just nothing. Um, it, was, it was that little hall that was right next to the Green Lantern. There's a little island there. Oh. Like you cross over onto a little island. I don't know if I knew that. This where this house is. On its own island. Did we say how much it was? $1.3 million. Okay. Well, those are the lows and the highs. Our guest, uh, reminding you, coming up in just a few minutes here, our in-studio guest is Dr. Paige Glotzer, author of How the Suburbs Were Segregated, Developers and the Business of Exclusionary Housing. She's also an uh, assistant professor at UW-Madison, and she is our expert um, for the day today. And now it's time for the top of the hour tip. We'll get some local advice from some of our favorite Lauer Realty Group agents on how to improve your home or investment property ownership experience. And after that, we'll be right back with the house that Rhonda bought. Hi, this is Liz Lauer, founder of the Lauer Realty Group. I take pride in having highly educated realtors who are passionate about their clients' pursuits. That passion translates into buying the right home, condo, or investment property, or when selling those same properties for clients, creating a highly stylized marketing plan that yields the best results. The core of the success comes from continually educating ourselves, our clients, and staying focused on key topics and strategies that will help us advocate for them like no other firm. Real Estate in the 608 is a window into our world that gives our listener market updates, current lending trends, home maintenance tips, remodeling help, and so much more. When you need our services, give us a call. Till then, sit back and enjoy and learn. It's time for the top of the hour tip. It's a Labor Day weekend. The Lauer Realty Group agents are either laboring or on vacation. We're turning to Evelyn Anton, disregarding the very child labor laws that this weekend celebrates. In with today's top of the hour tip, Evelyn Anton. I get it. Right now, your neighborhood school may be the second door on the left just before you get to the bathroom. Someday, your neighborhood school will again be the one just down the road or a short bus ride away. A lot of buyers consider the quality of local schools when shopping. Just like you can benefit from improving your home, you can make your home more attractive by helping improve your local schools. Community involvement is tied directly to the success of teachers and students alike. Think of your neighborhood school as the community amenity it is. Support it and see that it is valued. It doesn't matter if you don't have kids. Be mindful. The people you sell your house to might. Thank you very much, Evelyn. That's the top of the hour tip.
You're listening to Real Estate in the 608, Madison's Real Estate Magazine for your ears. Find us online at inthe608.com. My name is Adam Elliott. He is Ben Anton. And Ben, we're about to talk about the house that Rhonda bought. This epic story that we've been telling you for quite some time. We have undertaken the process of planning for this house's demolition and replacement. Yep. Quick little background. Eastside House kind of janky, deciding what to do with it. Should we tear it down? Should we build something new? Should we try to renovate it? Decided tear down's the way to go. We're going to sell it. We're going to rent it. We decided we're going to... We're going to build it. We're going to keep it. Build it and keep it. Five of the seven necessary approvals have been received. Okay. Engineering mapping, okay. Engineering planning, okay. Fire review, okay. Water utility, okay. Recycling plan. That's like literally what are you going to do with all the stuff that's on site? Huh. Uh, the two question marks are the big ones, which are planning and zoning. But this is all taking so long because it's on the back burner uh, and it's taking long. And, well, it's, it's, it's government and it's on our back burner, on Rhonda's back burner. So construction, materials, costs, shortages, like it's a mess. <laughs> the assessment was adjusted so okay. that the holding costs are relatively minimal, but uh, very high building costs here in the fall due to all the mm-hmm. all the things and literal shortages of materials at a Menards or a Home Depot, Lowe's, those kind of places. Difficult to get treated lumber, mm-hmm. difficult to get studs. Everything's costing more. We might be able to talk about the house to Rhonda built well into the spring. Oh boy. Because that's when it's finally <laughs> gonna be built. But we might get to see it torn down a lot sooner. So okay, here's right. to that. Let's take some pictures of the demo. That's always the fun part, isn't it? You know what else I've been watching demos? The old Century on Cottage Grove Road. Ooh. That finally came down, and now it's just a parking lot of rubble. And the new will come up there soon. Well, that is the house that Rhonda bought. It's time to bring in our distinguished guest for the day. The Wisconsin Idea is a philosophy embraced by the University of Wisconsin system that holds the university research should be applied to solve problems and improve health quality of life, the environment, and agriculture for all citizens of the state. You know, the regular folks, like, right. like, like you and I. That's the long explanation of it. It's so, certainly like applying things that they do at UW and helping the state with that information. I think it's also the sharing of ideas. And, sure. and, and today joining us to share her ideas is Dr. Paige Glotzer uh, is doing exactly that by agreeing to spend her time with us regular folk today. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Glotzer. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Glotzer is the Assistant Professor and John W. Jean M. Rowe Chair in the History of American Politics, Institutions, and Political Economy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of History since 2018. She is the Prize Fellow in Economics, History, and Politics at the Joint Center of History and Economics at Harvard University 2016 to 2018. But is she fun? But Ben, how do we know that she's fun? We play a game. We play a trivia game, a Madison History and Environs quiz game called The Way It Used to Be. There used to be, there used to be, there used to be, used to be nothing but smiling faces far as the eye could see, car in every driveway, swinging every tree, people can't stop talking about the way things used to be. Are you ready, Dr. Glotzer? I am. All right. In 1908... The Madison Parks and Pleasure Drive Association reached out to which city planner and student of Harvard's then Frederick Law Olmsted to aid in the further development of Madison's city parks? John Mullins? 
Wow. Not even a pause there. Well, congratulations. And John Olin. See, yeah, well, John John Nolan got a drive, and you, you probably, you've probably driven the drive, and you have likely driven past then Olin Park. John Olin was the Madisonian that aided in John Nolan's recruitment. Oh, was that your frame of reference then, Dr. Glatzer? It was John Nolan Drive. I said once once mentioned it was it was Parks and Pleasure Drive. I said there could only be one. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well done. John Nolan gets a mention in her book, so I knew she'd I, I had a feeling she'd be familiar with his work. The man John Nolan. Right? The man John not Nolan. The, not the concrete that's over by the lakes, right? Not the drive. Yes. Okay. No. Question two. In what year would a restrictive covenant like the following have become unenforceable. Only members of the Caucasian race shall use or occupy dwellings on said platted land, except that this shall not prevent occupancy by persons of a different race employed by the owner or tenant. Ooh, brutal. In yeah. what? I'm going to say that was 1948. Oh. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's right, though. I took that from your book. I'm going to have to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dude, the book, I think, is probably fact-checked, it's so right we there. could use that as a source. <laughs> I'm gonna look. It's been peer-reviewed. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to ring the bell for you, because uh. I didn't write it down, because I, I figured you'd know. Um, well, it was 1948, and that there was a Supreme Court case, Shelley v. Kramer, which said they were unenforceable, but they kept being used up through the passage of the Fair Housing Act when it finally became illegal. I anyway, think whichever she just ring. she just cited dates and times in court cases, so I think that's a point. <laughs> you, if, if you listen, if you listen to the podcast uh, after this, you'll hear that we often say we surround ourselves with people smarter than mm-hmm. we are. So you get the bell rung. That restrictive covenant, just for the record, was taken from one of Madison's uh, Lakeview neighborhoods, which is just north of Warner Park. Yeah, and I would just like note here that you know we this is a lighter game, of course. There's restrictive covenant. This is real history from Madison, and I think that's one of the things that we try to talk about in this podcast is the truth that it was and the reality that we're dealing with because of that. So this this restrictive covenant was recorded in December 1946. Remind me, restrictive covenants. Give me the quick definition of it. Uh, yes, they were contracts, um, essentially part of deeds or uh, neighborhood groups that set the rules for how a homeowner would be able to use their property. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. with the idea of preserving value and that uh, part of the sales pitch. Mm-hmm. But let's go to question three. We're pretty fun so far, I can tell. <laughs> in, 19, <laughs> in 1972... What organization shortened its acronym to NAR a year later, adding a capital R inside a block as its trademark and logo? Oh, this one I know. Um, it's the National Association of Realtors. Correct. And the, the longer version, the National Association of Real Estate Boards, which yeah. would have been the pre-1972 version of the same. Oh. Well, if we look at the big <clears throat> sign on the wall, the scoreboard says that's three for three. That is three for three. <laughs> Even if I get the fourth question wrong, at this point, it's a passing grade. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, let's take a quick break for the market update, and then we'll be back with our interview and some questions for Dr. Glotz. Hi, this is Liz Lauer, founder of the Lauer Realty Group. 
I take pride in having highly educated realtors who are passionate about their clients' pursuits. That passion translates into buying the right home, condo, or investment property, or when selling those same properties for clients, creating a highly stylized marketing plan that yields the best results. The core of the success comes from continually educating ourselves, our clients, and staying focused on key topics and strategies that will help us advocate for them like no other firm. Real Estate in the 608 is a window into our world that gives our listener market updates, current lending trends, home maintenance tips, remodeling help, and so much more. When you need our services, give us a call. Till then, sit back and enjoy and learn. It's time for the market update. In with us today, guest presenter Evelyn Anton. We are abandoning the child labor laws that this weekend is meant to celebrate. Here with the market update, Evelyn Anton. When you set a goal, do you pick a date or an event, or perhaps a date of an event, as an imagined deadline? When deadlines are soft, like starting a new home search or getting a home ready to sell might be, seeing the start of school end of a summer, September 1st, can mean a confluence of these soft deadline opportunities. As we might expect, this change of seasons means a little activity on the listing side, as well as many new buyers entering the market. This real estate fall generally runs right up to Thanksgiving and ends before our one month of real estate winter. You see January 1st, well, months before the first tulips, is often the first sign of real estate spring. This fall market is a great time to get out there if you feel the hectic spring market was just too much. Sellers, don't worry. There are still plenty of buyers shopping. The perfectly prepped price and marketed home may only get three offers, though, instead of 10. You'll be just fine. All right. Thank you, Evelyn, for the September 2020 Labor Day weekend market update. You're listening to Real Estate in the 608, Madison's Real Estate Magazine for your ears. You can find us online at inthe608.com, also on Facebook as well. My name is Adam Elliott. Ben Anton is sitting right across the table from me, and we are speaking on the phone right now to Dr. Paige Glotzer, assistant professor at UW-Madison, also author of the book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, and thank you for being with us today. I feel your book gave me one of the most easy-to-understand examples of, of how implicit bias becomes structural racism. I would be maybe that's because I have an, an eye towards real estate and a better understanding. But while that was the result for me, being able to draw that line from bias to structural racism, what did you hope to achieve in taking on the study or, or looking at it in the way you did? I wanted to be able to understand why things are the way they are today. So even though my book is a work of history, I think that prior to, to writing it, I would often look around and go, why is something worth this but not that? Or why is this house, you know, here but not there? Um, and I think that, uh, I, I think there's a big misconception that a lot of those processes are somehow natural or timeless or universal. And I wanted to really add context and explain, no, actually there, there was a real, there was a real sense that there could have been alternatives. And this was something that had to be built and constructed, sometimes street by street, all the way up to the national level. 
In in your book, we talk a lot. Of the, it's, we start in a very specific geography. Did the study of the topic take you to that place, or did you start in that place and and follow the story forward? So actually, the first chapter of the book, which is um, an international story, uh, it was the biggest surprise for me. So what I set out to do was write a book primarily about how uh, one suburban developer in Baltimore, the Roland Park Company, played a big role in the early years of housing policy. But when I started to look at how they essentially operated, it became very clear to me quickly that they got their money from all around the world. And then I realized, wow, the history of American suburban segregation actually has to leave the borders of the U.S., And that's where I started to get into geography of where that investment capital came from. And that was one of the hardest things to do. It was actually the last thing I did for the book because I had to learn everything else before I was able to follow the money. People are now imagining and and thinking as they listen, we're talking about suburbs, not of the post-World War II uh, housing boom suburb that you might think of immediately or you might think about the, the theme song from Weeds. Uh, with, with the tickets, Very nice. the, yes. the rows of houses and ticky-tacky. We're talking about, about turn-of-the-century, early 1900 suburbs, not unlike the one that, that I live in. Uh, the Shanks Corners would have been, a, would, would have, could have been a planned subdivision if it was. A, and mm-hmm. just like, uh, and this Lakeview Heights neighborhood with the restrictive covenants, while that was more of a 1940s um, the, the Roland Park development that, that Dr. Glatzer starts or, or uses as an example was the early teens, 1915, was it? Uh, well, the earliest, earliest was 1890, but their most successful was 1913, and that's the one with the racial covenants on it. How do we define successful in that area? So they, um, this is when the company started to get um, the idea that they could be a national model for suburban development. So it was really in around 1913, 14, that you really started to see the company kind of gaining a national reputation and sharing their what they did with planners and developers and policymakers all over the country. And that included John Nolan. Um, so I think that you know they started actually with an international capital. They were local. They were doing this one development in Baltimore. And then they branched out and they got this, they made a lot of money doing the second development, which was even more affluent and grand. And that was called Guilford, which is still considered today one of the richest, nicest neighborhoods of Baltimore, but also one of the whitest and most segregated. I want to zoom out just a little bit here. When we talk about the suburbs, in your research, what was the promise that the suburbs were going to offer? And what did they what do you feel like they actually did? Because I think a lot of what we're talking about is like a blueprint for how America was created and expanded upon. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think for people who've never been to Baltimore, um, the equivalent of these early developments might be Nakoma. I think Nakoma, when I when I drove through it, when I first moved to Madison, I was like, wow, this is Roland Park. In Madison, so that's the type of place that I that I'm looking at—a place like Nakoma. Uh, and the promise of a place like Nakoma or a place like Roland Park was supposed to actually be, in some form, escapism for uh, affluent, usually affluent, white Protestants, and that, that's very specific. But it was a big market, and it was well, the city is getting bigger, more industrial, more diverse. Uh, so there has to be, there's potentially another way of living that could guarantee um, a lack of diversity, 
um, health and safety and sameness. And so that was the promise of the suburbs initially. And that's partially why there were all these rules. So they were actually supposed to be guarantees of planning and of control that would make it a separate distinct place from the city that was giving giving people so many fears, often based in their class and race anxieties. We're talking about a time as America was developing that there was still hardcore racism and it was in some cases accepted that that's just the way things were. When you talk about some of the things that you're talking about, there was plan and there was design in these, right? Yes, that's actually what made them really different from a lot of what came before, because there has been, um, you know, houses on the peripheries, like the outskirts of cities, um, but they could be, they were very um, unregulated and unplanned. So the idea that you could have a large tract of land, maybe hundreds of acres, and that it could all be designed and master planned, and then essentially all operating under the same set of rules, was what was new about that type of suburb. That's what gives us kind of the modern suburb. And then some of those rules that were put into play where they talked about race explicitly, like certain races were allowed, certain were not. Exactly. But that was actually one of the biggest surprises, too, of my research. I thought that those, that those rules about race... Uh, specifically, they were rules that banned um, African-Americans, often people who weren't white in general, depending on the place. I would have assumed they went back much further and they would have been in cities as well as in rural areas and suburbs. And yet they really didn't start to be put into deeds and restricted covenants on a neighborhood scale until the turn of the 20th century. In fact, the Roland Park Company in Baltimore asked their lawyers if they could do it in the 1890s. And initially the lawyers said, no, that's not legal. So there was like this big change at the turn of the century um, that actually created a more, um, a more restrictive framework for suburban development than had existed prior to that. And I recall there was a differentiation in your book where making those rules on the very local or making them as deed restrictions versus ordinances. Or was there a was that one of the differences in how something that was clearly not exactly correct was was kind of slipped in the back door? Uh, Yeah. So there there were some ordinances. Um, In fact, a lot of the the bases for what became anti-Black housing segregation got us started anti-Chinese housing segregation in California. Um, but it was actually applied through to these deeds and contracts, meaning that no matter what was going to happen with ordinances, these were a lot more, these were potentially a lot more rock solid in court because they were private contracts. So that's why developers started to opt for them. And also cities were growing. So you never knew as a developer, if you were going to be annexed, if you were outside the city or, or what. And so having the restrictive covenants, especially, and having your own planners was a way to, again, kind of ensure that your vision would be there, regardless of what political jurisdiction you were going to be in. And I would imagine now, as this, we mentioned the, the Lakeview neighborhood and that restrictive covenant registered in 1946, this one had a, had a sunset or it was a guarantee and tied to the deed until January 1, 1971, that exclusivity until a certain time, at which point I would I would imagine the developer either said that at that point I washed my hands, it's no longer my responsibility to see these covenants are taken seriously at that mm. point. But by then, the neighborhood would have been established and kind of governed itself. Is that what you found in your research, too, that there were sunsets to some of these? Uh, yes, that actually became pretty standard practice. Um, at first, developers actually made them um, perpetually run with the land. 
And they later found that to be a mistake. Um, they actually had a lot of pushback against that. And then they had trouble potentially changing covenants or changing aspects of the development before they got out and washed <laughs> their hands of it. So, so they, wow. they had to find, they had to find that, that kind of right time scale. You're listening to Real Estate in the 608 Madison's Real Estate Magazine for your ears. Ben Anton is your host. He's right across the table from me. My name is Adam Elliott, and our on-the-phone guest today is Dr. Paige Glotzer, assistant professor at UW-Madison, uh, chair of the History and American Politics, Institutions, and Political Economy Department. Uh, it's Can you fit all that on your business card? It's a struggle, actually. <laughs> <laughs> she is also the, the author of the book, How the Suburbs Are Segregated, Developers and the Business of Exclusionary Housing, which is, uh, we should mention, uh, the book came out just this year, right? Yes. How long have you been doing research on this? Wow, uh, 10 years. Will there be a book tour? That's what the summer was supposed to be. Oh, um. yeah. <laughs> and then, <laughs> right. Go buy the book, folks. I'll just say it. Because she wasn't able to go to the Barnes and Noble and sit and sign copies and, and and give speeches, so here she is with us, and we thank you. One of the one of the things are the parallels. Maybe I was trying to put together some parallels of what I'm what I'm reading about, what I'm seeing today in my notes here. I write laziness and greed um, seem to be, or at least from what I'm seeing, two of the driving factors in 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 pushing these ideas from from just somebody's plan on mm -hmm. how to ensure a value is, is maintained to becoming the ideals of, of the National Real Estate Board. Do you see parallels like that from then to now? You know, it's actually funny to me. They had to work really, really, really hard to be as racist as they were. <laughs> the lazy thing would have not been to convince thousands of developers that restrictive covenants were necessary. And the lazy thing to do would have not been to put that into a code of ethics that was enforceable by losing licenses, right? So they had to do that work. So I, I think that's really an important takeaway of the book in that constructing a segregated housing market was actually a lot of work. So people were very invested, not just in the literal sense that this was they thought would be profitable. They were very invested that that would be part of the realtor professional identity, that it was the, the right thing to do. Um, and that also, I think, goes to show that from the beginning, the association itself was uh, pretty segregated. So this was essentially an echo chamber in some ways of a lot of very similar types of real estate practitioners from across the country, all trying to work out what it meant to turn real estate into a licensed profession. It's shocking. I, I want to get into like that process part that you kind of described as to how they did this. But I think one of the things that Ben was kind of itching it towards, too, is like, why? Why do this? Why put in that am amazing what we thought was laziness, but actually it was a lot of effort to make this happen. From what you found out, could you put your finger on, on a why? Yeah, I, I think that actually it started. Um, so the, the National Association of Realtors, it was um, there were local boards and the boards got together and they had these. And so you basically had a lot of local um, ideas about things like race and geography that were informing individual members. And then some of these individual members became leaders because of their reputation. And so early on with, uh, with NARA and NAR, the people who became the leaders were the suburban developers who were actually a relatively small handful of NARA members. Most, most people in real estate aren't huge developers. And so they kind of set the tone and they had already been kind of experimenting with ideas of like, what can an, like a really rich white client base uh, find appealing? So essentially what you have is a scaling effect where the essentially the, the work of developing 
a segregated suburb, a planned segregated suburb that's scaled up to be the kind of like desirable thing to do from the leaders who had the best reputations. And that essentially they got filtered down to be like the thing to aspire to for all of real estate. I think there's also a product there that they can sell after the fact. Once you've established this neighborhood on the hill, like a Nakoma or a Roland Park or a Guilfoyle, who everybody wants to be like that. Mm-hmm. I was I was sitting in with my girlfriend in, in Fort Atkinson's. Her home was built in the 1930s, and it, it, it's it's stately. And we were talking about the fact that it had survived its its 80 80 some years. Um, with its finishes intact, et cetera. And I, and I felt, I was thinking about how that home may have been marketed when it was brand new. And it's nicer than you would expect for such a small home. But it was probably an affordable opportunity to live like the rich. It was, it was uh, so, so these, these ideas, these restrictive covenants were no longer necessary just for the subdivision on the hill or the suburb that was meant to be exclusive, but now it's an opportunity for the working man, for the for the more affordable development, to have the same privileges extended to them. And I think I think as a developer, maybe that's where I saw the the the, the ease happening. Where I, well, I'm just going to reprint this and make it with smaller houses that I can sell to more people, but give them the same restrictive covenants and and assurances that that they would have received at a higher price point. I mean, that's just kind of smart money. I think that's absolutely true. Um, And there's another piece of it, which also went into the kind of selling and profitability aspect, which is that uh, these um, rules, um, restricted covenants, became the basis of a lot of zoning laws and ultimately became the rules for federal lending. And so that takes us to this kind of suburban boom after World War II in that all all of the suburbs that where people were able to get easy mortgages, GI mortgages, or mortgages for their first ever homes. They were only built because the people who built them followed the rules for federal lending. And those were, those, those, those go all the way back to restrictive covenants. So houses had to be single family and detached. They, ha- they had to have restrictive covenants. They had to have these, res- these restrictions on commerce and use. And those then became the gateway for people to actually have those aspirations and be in the suburbs. It also meant that all of the segregation carried over, too, into the post-war moment. You're listening to Real Estate in the 608, Madison's Real Estate Magazine for your ears. My name is Adam Elliott. He is Ben Anton. Our, our guest on the phone today is Dr. Paige Glotzer, assistant professor at UW-Madison uh, in the history area, also author of the book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated. Um, I'm glad you just made a great segue there. We've kind of been talking about the suburbs and how the, the design and planning uh, came together. There was a plan. Somebody said, like, this seems to be the plan that we're going to go with. It was inherent with racism. That plan seemed to be copied because you know there was a profitable aspect to it and we started talking about the the money how people got the money to buy the houses and uh, which where we start talking about federal loan programs and such that's where we start hearing the term redlining come into play yes redlining in, in the strict historical sense was that uh during the new deal so in the middle of the great depression uh the housing industry was in shambles and a lot of people were about to lose their mortgages because they couldn't make payments so the federal government uh or specifically an agency within the federal government called the Homeowners Loan Corporation stepped in to come up with all new uh, 
policies for who could get a mortgage and how they would help the average American out. Uh, and this actually meant that this was the birth of a mortgage that's still in place today, um, 25 or 30 years, monthly payments that are basically the same. So this was a huge boon to the people who could get this access to federal mortgages. But the federal government also had to create criteria for who would be eligible and what types of properties would be eligible for these really great mortgages. And so what they did was they mapped out uh, over 200 cities uh, in the country, including Madison, including Milwaukee and Chicago. And they divided areas up in the basis of how risky, and they defined risk. How risky would it be to lend in those areas? Like, would they ever get the money back? And that's where they started to make rules, such as our neighborhoods majority white, our neighborhoods becoming African-American, um, our property values declining because the neighborhood is mixed. And they would document, they would mix up the qualities of people in these rules and the qualities of the property itself. And so as a result of that, whole areas were essentially declared almost no-go areas for pretty good mortgage terms, often based on the fact that an area had some percentage of a population that wasn't essentially white. And they define white, sometimes they define white a little more narrowly than we would today. So sometimes you would see Jewish, for instance, marked out as separate. But by and large, African-American, you saw a percentage of an area being African-American that was almost um, an automatic indicator that an area would be redlined and that people wouldn't have the same access to good mortgages as somewhere else. Would you say it's fair to say that home ownership has been one of the key drivers of accumulating wealth and passing generational wealth down in the United States for some time? Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of scholarship that backs that up. We kind of see how an inequitable situation has been created. Some people were favored, others were not. Those people who were favored to get a loan were able to build up wealth. Others were not. And we see an economic problem developing, a significant one. Yeah, there was a huge divergence. Uh, and this had all sorts of consequences that rippled out for generations, including that uh, neighborhoods and cities couldn't get any type of finance flowing into them. So they were essentially, there was a, they were a site of disinvestment where people in them couldn't move out, they couldn't leave, but they also couldn't get any access to good credit. So regardless of what they wanted to do with their homes, regardless of where they wanted to go, or regardless of how they wanted to be part of the American dream, race was often a deciding factor in um, access to that American dream or block it from that American dream. When we first reached out to you, the headlines were filled a little bit more with F-35 than they are today. Today's headlines are here with racial disparity. But as we talk about redlining, I thought I'd bring up that, that F-35 issue because having those planes there will make the federal government view that area in the same way they would have viewed a neighborhood with an increasing population of African Americans. They will literally draw a red line. And what happens is exactly what, what Dr. Glasser mentioned there, disinvestment. It's doubly bad because we have seen that that area is already an overrepresentative sample of minorities. 
and the funding could potentially become unavailable. Exactly. Um, and it's the, these consequences have almost a circular history in a way, because not only are we looking at a, a new updated form of redlining in an area that is for Madison disproportionately uh, made up of, of people of color, a lot of the a lot of the the housing in that area was built and accessible to people of color to begin with because it already had a lower property value thanks to things like the airport. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing is essentially redlining and the zoning that came before it and restrictive covenants that came before it all essentially um, left areas that were already unhealthy or toxic or noisy or polluted as the only areas that were available for, for people of color, especially poor people of color to live in. And now we're seeing essentially a continued assault on the environment um, uh, that those people live in generations, potentially generations later. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that there's a public housing project in that zone. Mm-hmm. It's because the public housing project uh, was cited there in part because a neighborhood like, or a neighborhood that would have been graded A uh, or best on a redlining map probably had more power to say, we don't want a public housing project in our neighborhood. So I think what you're actually seeing is in some ways a lot of continuity in terms of this long, long, long history of um, environmental racism, of neighborhood exclusion, and the geography of where people live based on race. You're listening to Real Estate in the 608, Madison's Real Estate Magazine for your ears. He has been Anton. My name is Adam Elliott. Our on-the-phone guest is Dr. Paige Glotzer, author of the book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, uh, also an assistant professor at UW-Madison who's researched this very topic that we're on right now. We talk about a little bit about patterns here. Ben just noted a pattern that seems to be happening once again. There was uh, another article I just recently saw. They overlaid essentially redlining spaces along with environmental maps in cities as to where cities were hotter. The temperature was physically hotter and the two maps yeah. kind of like identically laid on top of each other. And what other patterns do you see? Uh, yeah, so it, there's a lot there's a lot of environmental disparities. So we, we, you mentioned earlier there was a wealth gap, right? So people people's access to housing also helps them to accumulate wealth. So redlining segregation has created racial inequality. It's also created these environmental inequalities that really have impacts on health. Uh, and well-being. So one thing that really impacts, say, the temperature is something that you notice in a lot of places with um, these histories of neighborhood segregation, which is even something like access to green space, trees, Mm -hmm. parks. They are really, really uneven. And you can actually, uh, if you overlay, say, a tree map in Baltimore, you will actually see the outlines of Roland Park Company neighborhoods because they have denser tree coverage. Trees are often municipal resources, right? So they're often maintained by a city, they're paid for by a city, even if they may have initially been planted by a developer. And so it's actually another form of investment or disinvestment based on things like race and class. Where the city would just kind of pick up doing it that way because that's the way it's been done. Right. And there's also a neighborhood power differential, right? So the people who, who has more power um, individually to make noise in the leisure time, someone in Nakoma or someone in Burr Oaks? Probably someone in Nakoma 
can can shout louder to get something for their neighborhood. They're going to be more insulated from any any unpleasantness, though, due to the fairway on hole number nine. It's it's interesting that you thought of that example. I wanted to make sure to say thank you to Kelly at Nightberry Title. She was the woman who looked up that restrictive covenant for me, and uh, she sent me that one from Lakeview Heights, but said, you know, maybe if I have a chance to do some digging, I'm sure I could find some up in Tacoma. Uh, well, she did not provide me with that one, and I cannot say there are. Uh, you're right that it do, that the Tacoma neighborhood does kind of fit in a box. Mm-hmm. Sure. Actually, I have on the language right in front of me because um, I believe it was in Stu, uh, Stuart Leviton's um, book on Madison. Sure, sure. Um, so there, there was um, 1931 was the date of this restrictive covenant, and it said, "quote No part of these premises shall ever be owned or occupied by any person of the Ethiopian race," which was a way of saying African American. Once the development started to to essentially prosper in the early 20th century, there was a huge trail of letter writing because that's how people communicated with each other, it seems, like a lot in the early 20th century. So I was able to start mapping who was talking to whom. So I would see a developer in Kansas City writing to developer in Baltimore. I'd see a planner in uh, New York writing to Baltimore. And so you got a sense that they were sort of informally talking. And then they started to formally talk by joining together and having these very frank discussions about, you know, they, uh, who would be excluded, how would they pay for things, what were their sales tactics. So I have documents where conversations were recorded where they would literally say, raise your hand if you exclude Jews, and they would vote. Uh, and they, they typed that all out for, for posterity, so now, now we have it. Um, and these were the conversations that were essentially the backbone of how people shared ideas with the folks they considered to be their peers, planners, policymakers, makers. Uh, and that, that is how a lot of times local practice became in some ways standardized or even repeated nationally. And sometimes folks worked on different projects across the country, like the Olmsted brothers, like John Nolan. And so they would take things like covenants with them, or they would take street names with them. Um, and ultimately, they would consult for city governments, and they would consult then ultimately for the federal government. So you see a repetition, the same people and the same phrasing, the same sentences and the same rules over and over and over and over until ultimately you see it in the language of the law itself. I wish I could be in the room and say, what are you thinking? What what are you trying to do here? Uh, they didn't see themselves as being racist or evil. They saw themselves as being upstanding businessmen. They thought what they were doing was acceptable and, and mainstream. I could say they weren't necessarily willing to tell people that they rejected face-to-face that they were excluded because they were Black or Italian or whatnot. So they weren't like entirely okay with publicly broadcasting it. But at the same time... They, what, what I didn't find was a lot of hesitation um, or, a lot, or any type of second-guessing or guilt. Um, this seemed to be, in any ways, the majority kind of, this was the, this was the prominent way uh, in that white realtors talked about real estate and thought that real estate value worked. And you see that backed up by um, folks from universities econo- uh, in uh, economics, in land development. So you start to have a a kind of academic intellectual sheen that's also added to the first real estate textbooks, which were coming out in the 20s. The University of uh, Wisconsin played a big role in this because we had the Institute of Land Economics here. So there there are all of these essentially nodes through which these ideas got validation 
and essentially continued to carry um, a profit-making weight to that. I don't know if I'm feeling an obligation to, because normally I'm, I'm the first to besmirch the National Association of Realtors and their voting record. But I wonder if the NAR or the realtors and, the, and some of those policymakers are in fact kind of a, a funneled or focused opinion of their customers. Uh, yes, but I, would, I, would push, I think that's true to, a, to an extent. But I would push back a little bit, especially in the early 20th century, when they were creating places that didn't have much precedent, meaning they were actually doing a lot of work to teach people how to live in the suburbs. Um, and so I, at first, um, realtors had to essentially convince buyers that restrictive covenants were good things because they were restrictions on property that people owned. So they were willing to put in the work under the assumption that if that was successful, that would be long-term profits. But at first, I, there wasn't necessarily a lot of, okay, people like X, Y, and Z, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. That certainly became the case, um, I think, later on. One thing they certainly were taking advantage of in the early 20th century was the rise of Jim Crow, the growth of cities, and also immigration, especially from Eastern and Southern Europe. So they were certainly playing on um, certain prejudices, um, that absolutely, but they were shaping those prejudices in very new ways. And then from there, they were often experimenting uh, with, and sometimes discarding things that worked for them and didn't work for them. So I would say that they, they had a big role in creating what consumer assumptions about suburbs were, even if they couldn't do that entirely in a one-sided way. You're listening to Real Estate in the 608 Madison's Real Estate Magazine for your ears. My name is Adam Elliott. He has been Anton. We're speaking with Dr. Paige Glotzer, assistant professor at UW-Madison, also author of the book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated. Boy, I, I mean, when we describe... <laughs> that right there. I know I know we say it kind of matter of fact, but we are talking about the history of the United States here. It leaves me circling back to I think what you said the same reason why you were interested um in finding this out. You were, you wanted to know more. Why does this happen? Is is it the folly of humans? Is it, you know, fear-based prejudices that that folks went this direction? Is there even like one person to blame? Is there a way to do that? I'm curious your insight on what we've learned in this process. Yeah, it's hard to blame one person this really is about building a system and about building a market. So markets are very, very abstract. It's really hard to sort of pull apart what makes a market. But I do think that markets, especially the housing market, is very much a product of public and private interests um, and policy. And it's about power. So developers had a larger, they carved out a larger seat at the table for themselves through over decades of, of different types of lobbying work. And so what we're hearing is amplified voices of a few rather than necessarily some type of naturalistic um, theory about supply and demand. So I think that one thing, one takeaway is that there's not a neat, easy separation. There never has been between public and private sectors and between the market and the state. It's all mixed up together, and housing policy and housing markets are completely intertwined. So I think that's one takeaway. But the most important takeaway, I think, for my research is that none of this is inevitable. Uh, so like I said earlier, developers had to put in a lot of work to make segregated suburbs, but they had to put in that work because there was nothing natural about it or easy about it. And I think that means that it can be changed. There's no reason why housing segregation 
is essentially going to have to continue because it's not a natural thing. So I think that it actually, despite the book having a very sort of pessimistic subject matter, I think that at heart, the lesson it can give us is an optimistic one and that we, knowing history, can potentially give us the power to create a more equitable uh, United States. There's no way. you feel that the, that enough people are understanding the the rise of these systemic issues that 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 there's real action being taken today to counteract it or do you do you feel that there's enough things happening now to course correct um i think that there needs to be more needs to be more um i think that there have been activists fighting and devoting their lives to to making housing more equal there always has been um, and very often, though, those are the folks who themselves have experienced marginalization. So those people in power now, people on commissions, people, um, legislators, are they doing enough to listen to the folks who already have ideas and who already know these topics? I think more can be done. And I think that people are showing, especially those people in power, are showing more of an interest in it, especially given the recent events throughout the country. Um, so, again, I'm hopeful, but I, I think that there's... I think it's going to be really a learning process and a very uncomfortable one for a lot of people who get to make those decisions. We talked a little bit about UW-Madison's role in this. We talked about John Nolan's role in this, the localization of this. The question is, what is interesting about UW-Madison and John Nolan in this story? So UW-Madison operates off the Wisconsin idea about sharing research for the public good. But in the early 20th century, what it meant to um, for business and real estate and planning uh, courses like those at UW-Madison, it meant that the public good was often about coming up with ideas of land use regulation, property value, and ideal ways of living. Um, and so universities like UW-Madison especially uh, were oftentimes centers for theorizing why segregation was potentially a good thing. Uh, And even before that, the fact that there was a lot of erasure that went on in these departments. Again, who was a part of a university department in the early 20th century? Uh, At UW-Madison, that was probably going to be a fairly narrow demographic of people. Um, Universities themselves were already on native land um, and often didn't include Native Americans in conversation. So there's just so much silencing going on in terms of thinking about who were who they helping? Who were they helping? And unfortunately, when it came to things like how did property value work? How do cities evolve and change? All of these theories were ultimately used in the service of segregation, including by the real estate industry. Let's take a break for Phil's phone in and we will circle back for some closing thoughts with Dr. Glass. Hey, Ben, it's Phil with a view from beyond the 608. You know, Federal Reserve policy speeches don't resemble Apple product introductions. There's not a lot of high polish, not a lot of focus on user experience, not a lot of denim. So at times, it's easy for Fed news to escape widespread notice. Last week was one of those times. Here's what happened. As part of restating its policy goals, the Fed suggested that the central bank won't worry as much about unleashing inflation when making monetary policy decisions in deflationary times. This is what Fed Chair Jerome Powell said. 
our longer run goal continues to be an inflation rate of 2%. However, if inflation runs below 2% following economic downturns, but never moves above 2% even when the economy is strong, then over time inflation will average less than 2%. Households and businesses will come to expect this result, meaning that inflation expectations would tend to move below our inflation goal and pull realized inflation down. To prevent this outcome and the adverse dynamics that could ensue, our new statement indicates that we will seek to achieve inflation that averages 2% over time. Therefore, following periods when inflation has been running below 2%, appropriate monetary policy will likely aim to achieve moderately above 2% for some time. Not very exciting, right? But over the past six months, with the pandemic weighing on economic performance, inflation has been running at an average of 0.8% year over year. Powell is saying that the Fed is now willing to keep the monetary spigots open beyond a return to simple 2% growth in prices. At the risk of oversimplifying, a six-month stretch of 0.8% makes it okay to have a subsequent half-year period of plus 3.2%, bringing that average inflation number to the 2% target. For those of us interested in real estate, this increases the potential for longer periods with low rates. Those rates are certainly on the downswing today, with 30-year mortgages running near 2.9% the past few weeks, the lowest levels we've ever seen. That's all for now, Ben. Once again, this is Phil with a view from beyond the 608. You're listening to Real Estate in the 608, Madison's Real Estate Magazine for your ears. Find us online at inthe608.com. My name is Adam Elliott. He is Ben Anton, directly across the table from me. And on the phone is Dr. Paige Klotzer, UW-Madison. She's the chair of the History of American Politics, Institutions, and Political Economy. Is that a department? No, no, it's an history department, but it's, it's, yeah. it's a fancy title. I'm not, I'm not actually in charge of other people. Gotcha. <laughs> it, well, the chair is an important title. So uh, one of the reasons we had you in here today is, one, you're a wonderful person to talk to, and we should thank you again for your time here. But you also wrote the book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, which sounds like it was a 10-year journey for you. Can you count the amount of uh, you know Post-it notes and, and notebooks that have gone into this journey? Oh, I can count the amount of computers, the amount of uh, quiz notes, sandwiches that I ate out of desperation working late at night. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. And how can folks find that book? Oh, it should be available at, um, at all local and national uh, retailers. Well, we're going to put a we're going to put a link uh, to you in our show notes and so people can uh, can investigate, pick up a copy on their own. People listening closely noticed I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the colonialism aspect and where those investment dollars were coming from. But once we got to Baltimore, I was all in and I was I was laying that study over over my hometown of Milwaukee and 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 my now town of Madison and understanding different neighborhoods that were developing at similar times and trying to see little similarities across the board. And it was really an interesting journey and we really enjoyed it. Well, that's a good sign for the book. If Ben followed the arc of the story and related it to his own experience, I think that's a home run, Dr. Glasser. <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy to hear that. I thank you again. Dr. Glotzer. It has been amazingly informative. And again, we thank you for your time, Dr. Glotzer. Well, thank you very much. I had a great time. You're listening to Real Estate in the 608, Madison's Real Estate Magazine for your ears. Find us online in the 608.com, also on Facebook. Ben, what was that? 
Let me just take pause for a moment. That'd be a great place for you, our listeners, to go and vote for us. <laughs> as we are finalists in two categories in the Wisconsin Podcast Association's Choice Awards, you'll find a link there at In the 608. Well done. Facebook. You are the consummate promoter. Uh, ben, that was a fantastic interview with Dr. Paige Glotzer. It, it was. And we talk about surrounding ourselves with people smarter than we are. Mm. And we have outdone ourselves. Oh, well, she is, you know, she's got the credentials behind her name and in front of her name. <laughs> and uh, Harvard. This, this, was, this was a good learning experience we, we for had, me. I mean, I get it. University of Wisconsin, proud alumni here. Uh, but Harvard. You put the Ivy Leagues on there. And we've got, we've had an Ivy impressive. League guest. I, we just upclassed all of our other guests. <laughs> I'm going to let Pulley, Pulley, our first guest and favorite plumber, know that uh, we followed him up with a, with a doctor from Harvard. Gotcha. I think we're a classy by association. <laughs> a little bit. But some really, as I said, real, a really interesting story that, that helped me. Again, somebody who's all over the place passionate about real estate, but really helped me connect the dots mm -hmm. to see how it was that this particular development and the success they were having there, monetary, financial success, translated so quickly into policy. And as the National Association of Real Estate Boards was born, and representatives of mm -hmm. that Nolan Park took part in that planning, and then how quickly it was that the Home Loan, Homeowners Loan Corporation Today, federal government money, how that how that association so quickly turned to this new organization of realtors and said, well, you guys know all kinds about real estate. Come on over and help us write some laws. Well, all of a sudden, there we were. Boom, 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 boom. And the, these little ideas, these racist, plain as day, I want your money, is all of a sudden in the law books. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the takeaway that she talked about how, I mean, I don't love it, but I it was found it most interesting that this was done by design and they had to pitch this hard. This was not like accepted norms that we would exclude people from living in certain places or giving a loan. Like people had to work hard to do these things, which is awful. It tells us and, and helps us understand that these were done by design. This isn't the way it's always been. And that's that's kind of the problem is we start thinking that like, oh, you know, discrimination's always kind of been there. It hasn't always been there. It was done at one time and just through generations and time, it seems like it has. That was a lot of learning and a little leaning in and a little getting uncomfortable. I ask, I'm going to ask myself to do that every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I invite you to do that with us here a little bit as we as we shine a light on some pretty ugly stuff. Yep, that's the uh, choice that we make here. We can choose to keep learning and uh, hopefully making a better situation. And hopefully uh, that's what happened for you today. I know that's what happened for me, Ben. Another way to access real estate in the 608 is the newsletter. The newsletter, available from me, Ben Anton, broker associate at the Lauer Realty Group. It's the 22nd, 22nd read. It is arrives on the 22nd and is written in easy to digest segments taking no longer than 20 seconds to read that's a guarantee right there it's going to have a market update and some other tips but it's for the most part just a mid-month check-in and a hey how you doing this is what real estate looks like today and i like that you call that the podcast for your eyes it's a podcast for your eyes <laughs> as, as where we are the magazine for your ears that's right uh thank you ben for being here today um great questions i thought that interview um went fantastic we should again thank dr uh, Paige glotzer um for informing us and guiding us through that conversation that was wonderful also thank some of the musicians that you've heard throughout Real Estate in the 608 today. Uh, Renclaw, El Donk. <laughs> uh, but also a thanks to Bob Westfall, who I will be visiting shortly to help him install some windows. Oh, cool. uh, Seesaw, 
and the Mad City Jug Band. Yeah, and uh, of course, thank you uh, to our listeners who've been with us on this journey today. We hope it was informative. And thank you to our listeners again, especially the ones who went to the Facebook and found the link and voted for us. Yeah, finals. Thank you. And if you'd like to do that again, we would not not say no to that. (laughs) I think you can do it as many times as email addresses you have. Oh, is that right? So just start (laughs) hotmailing that thing as many times as you can? (laughs) Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for listening to Real Estate in the 608. Madison's Real Estate Magazine for your ears. Real Estate in the 608 is a podcast for homeowners, home buyers, landlords, tenants, people who just want to be better at living in a home. If you can't get enough Real Estate in the 608 between episodes, like us on Facebook at In the 608 or visit inthe608.com for archived episodes and show notes. Remember, until you tell us, we don't know. We appreciate your listening, as well as your ratings and reviews at your favorite podcast portal. We also welcome feedback and topic suggestions via email to ben at benanton.com. Come on, baby, won't you hold me tighter than your fist curled up in a schoolyard fight? I'll be a backup when you're calling my name. And come on, baby, won't you keep me safer than that high score on that pinball game you're always playing at your favorite arcade? Amber could be taking the aims. Amber could be. Come on, baby, won't you buy me flowers with that money spent on whiskey sours that you're buying at those wasted hours? And come on, baby, won't you talk me sweet? Instead, I'm staring at this empty seat because you got someone else you'd rather me. And we could be. So I'm singing you this waiting song